Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. This episode is brought to you by Riverside.fm, and quite literally because it's what I use to record both my podcasts, Everything is Marketing, and Default Alive. But I was using Riverside long before they became a sponsor. I used to use Zoom until someone interviewed me using Riverside, and I just knew that I had to make the switch. Personally, I love it because they take local recordings on each side, which gives you a reliable connection, and the highest quality audio and video tracks. Separate HD recordings, an iOS app, automatic transcriptions, it's made specifically for podcasters. People like Guy Raz from How I Built This, Cortland Allen from Indie Hackers, and even Hillary Clinton uses it, if you can believe it. Check them out and all the other features they have at riverside.fm. One more time, that's riverside.fm. On the show today is Rand Segal. Rand is the founder of Flex Academy, which offers courses on web design, freelancing, and teaching Webflow as well. I wanted to bring him on because Rand is one of the most successful course creators that I know personally. Flex Academy does over $2 million in sales with a very small, lean team. And it all started with Rand's YouTube channel and running workshops at local tech meetups. So you hear about how Rand creates so much video content, how they've diversified channels across search, video, and social media, and his approach to course production. So to start out, I always love asking, did you ever think that you'd be teaching Webflow for a living and web design? Definitely not. Like, it's funny. I just had lunch with a friend today and I was, I was like, Dude, I could not imagine this would be my life a few years ago. If I would have to say what business would I start, it would probably not be this. Hmm. But here we are. And we're having a good time. So <laughs> That's right. Things are going well. Yeah. Well, what what yeah. did you think that you might end up doing or you know, business you might have started? Originally I thought I'm going to be a designer, like forever because I started off as a designer and I was super passionate about it. And then I got into tech and I don't know if I'm based in Tel Aviv, Israel and everybody here has a tech startup, mostly in the SaaS business. So then I was like, yeah, I'm going to have a tech startup. So I'm going to have a SaaS business. And I, <clears throat> I kind of lived this life, bootstrapped a SaaS company for, for a few years. Oh. I thought that's what's going to happen. Yeah. But then we rolled over. I mean, we, we had a project. It didn't, it, it was somewhere in that doing okay, but not growing, not well enough to sustain us, the founders to, to support us. And then eventually we sold it and moved on to other things. But for a lot of years, I think I thought that's what I'm going to do. Definitely not teach people or have, have a school. Although now looking backwards, like all the dots connect, but I couldn't see it you know, while I was doing things. Right, right. Hindsight's always twenty twenty. Well, how yeah. did uh, Flux and, you know, what we know as Flux is sort of uh, there's the YouTube and then there's their, the courses and then there's sort of like, you know, the brand and you're a part of it as well and in and, and your face. But what what's the origin story of how you began doing that and what became Flux as we know it today? So while I was doing the other startup, with my two partners, I started YouTubing for fun. At that period, I was kind of addicted to Casey Neistat daily vlogs. It was just, it just came out and I was super addicted to it. Watched it every day with my wife. And I was really, 
I was always like, I want to see the life of a designer. What would that vlog look like? And I would search on YouTube and I couldn't find anything. And also with Casey, he was originally also building his tech startup, but he didn't really share what's going on inside. So it was mostly lifestyle, but then he never talked about the painful things, like what's not working, what are they doing? So I was like, I want to see the inside of that from the designer of a from a designer perspective. And I was just like, I'm going to try it. I'm going to give it a try and see if I like it. So I kind of challenged myself to do it for a little bit. And yeah, it started off as a hobby. I got hooked on doing this. So if you go to my YouTube channel and go through the first videos, you will see me working on a completely different business, which is our original mm -hmm. business. So that's how it started, just out of hobby. And I kept doing it at, even after that business closed and I kept on freelancing as a designer and eventually released a Webflow course to that audience because was, there was a great demand to it. But I, I couldn't see it coming where I didn't, I didn't start the YouTube channel in order to sell something. It was originally a passion project. Yeah. And Webflow, at that time was still like pretty, pretty young or pretty early. I would assume like what, what year was that? Because Webflow, I feel like it's only really come into, into vogue in the last, you know, two to three years. Yeah. I think that's when I sort of discovered it and started getting into it a little bit. Although I am not a web designer, so it's a very different experience for me as well. But <laughs> when, when did you first start getting, getting into it? So I got into Webflow when it just got out of beta. I think that's 2014. And yeah. it made a huge impact on my life in our startup as a freelance designer, immediately start using it and started doing with my two partners kind of work local workshop in Israel where we are for designers teaching them Webflow. And then I got connected with the founders because they saw my videos. I was sharing about it on YouTube just because I was working with it daily. And we got connected and we got friends. I got friends originally with the CTO, Brian. And he was in Israel and we, we kind of became friends and then they started sponsoring my YouTube channel. And then they got me to go to the US to do a, a workshop at a designers conference. Hmm. And that, that workshop that I did there kind of became the actual core content of the course. When I got back, I was like, I have all this workshop, I can just record it and sell it online. And that's basically what happened. Hmm. I love that because I feel like you hear the advice all the time of, oh, before you go record a course, like do it as a workshop first or, you know, test it and get it in front of people. But then you never actually like really hear the examples of what that looks like. And so it's great to hear that. But I'm also wondering, uh, by the way, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer on validation. And so even after that, I pre-sold it to my audience before I went ahead and to huh. record it just to see that really people are going to buy it. So, hmm. yeah. How do how did you know to do that? Like, was that something you just always thought like, oh, this is kind of a best practice for launching a course or was it just sort to of- To validating? That, yeah, so, yeah. Or is that yeah. just something that came naturally? I was, as I've mentioned, in the whole world of startups and SaaS and reading all the books, like the Lean Startup and all of these things. So I was, I got the methodology, you know, I knew the framework of, you know, validate your hypothesis and with the lowest minimum viable product and see that 
there's a demand before you go ahead and invest. So I knew kind of basically the framework of how to go around it, and I just did it. Hmm. Well, good yeah. for you. I mean, yeah. <laughs> seems to have panned out well, right? You validated. But I have to, and, uh, I have to tell you from my experience, I've been talking with so many people who are like, oh, I have this product idea. I have this course idea. And the first thing I told them is, you know, okay, go put a landing page or go sell it to like 10 people and see if they're, they'll even buy it. And 90% of the people I talked to are like, no, you know what? I'm just going to do it. I feel like it's going to be okay. <laughs> so it's an advice most people will not take. I think everybody right. knows that's what you're supposed to do. Most people will just not do it. See, you're a marketer. You just tell people to sell even before they build. You're not a, you're not yeah. a designer. One, one sort of tangential note for a second is one of the things I've been wondering about, especially for course creators, is the impact of not only what they teach, but sort of the tools and platforms that they teach on. Uh, so I know like Marie Poulin from Notion Mastery and some of the guys over, you know, from a couple of other different like tools. We have, you know, in, in, like the web development world, everyone sort of has their different channel or angle around, oh, I teach Rails or I teach uh, React or I teach mobile or I teach this or that or the other. What impact do you think Webflow, the tool, and also Webflow's growth in and of itself has had on you in your business? You know, do you feel like it's sort of you're riding the wave or you're, you know, would have been successful if you were doing another channel or, I mean, another platform? I'm just wondering, like, kind of the relationship with Webflow and how that impacted Flex. So, yeah, Webflow is on a growth trajectory. So I think, you know, they just, I think, raised $150 million and they're dumping it on ads. And so basically people are getting the Webflow ads and then they're like, oh, damn, Webflow is difficult. How can I learn? It? <laughs> so obviously we are riding the wave in a sense, but in the bigger picture, uh, Webflow is still a drop in a very, very big world. If I would be in, if I would doing this from a marketing perspective or not marketing, but maybe like business perspective, if I would teach people how to use Elementor on WordPress, or if I would teach people Wix or Squarespace, I would be in a, a hundred times bigger market and I could potentially make way more money, but it's not in line with, you know, what I believe and what I think would best serve, you know, the people that I'm trying to help. And so it's kind of like a trade-off. Yes, we are enjoying the growth of Webflow, but also we're in there not because of the growth, but we're there because we believe this product. But to be super, super honest, when there is a better solution to solve that particular problem for our audience, and there are, you know, competitions, it's a, it's a tough market, we will sell a different, you know, we will teach people what is the best solution for them. I mean, we're not, I love Webflow as a company. As I said, I love the founders. But from a business perspective, I think we'll do what's best for our students. I think that's smart. Yeah, and, and, and very reasonable. The reason why I ask is I feel like there's this very delicate balance between teaching something that you know well or that you love sort of inherently. You sort of have like this like emotional attachment to it. You want to see other people succeed with it. Uh, versus also like, can I create a business out of this? You know, and like there's this weird like tension between is this a passion or is this a business? 
am I dumb for not going over here in this opportunity? Or am I, am I smart for niching down? Things like that, right? They're just sort of these inward philosophical questions. Yeah. First of all, there need there has to be a market alignment. Otherwise, you're just creating, you know, something that you're passionate about and nobody will buy. But, you know, we have we have three courses now. And again, I think so we have a webflow course, we have a web design course, we have a freelancing course. Obviously, a web design a general web design course has a it's a bigger niche. So it has because people who use Webflow can buy it, but also people who use WordPress can buy it. So I think in general, as a business, you have a niche, but you can do multiple things within that niche. And you have to hit something that resonates, right? Yeah, it really is a balance. You have to check yeah. multiple boxes, yeah. not just one, right? Yeah. I want to get into the marketing strategy for, for Flux. And I know like, and you're, you're not a marketer, but I know you can walk me through all the things that you're doing. <laughs> but also to give, to give I have been idea. actually, to be fair, you know, I've been running the company for three years and I'm just, I've just <laughs> hired my marketer. So for three years, I've been the marketer. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. You're a great marketer. <laughs> but before we dig, dig into sort of the details and channels, and I'm going to poke and prod around a home to different areas. Can you just give us an idea of how big flux is, you know, whether it's revenue or customers, whatever you're comfortable sharing, just to kind of set the context for what we're talking about. Yeah, sure. We're, I think this year we'll do around $2 million. What other numbers, like number of students, I don't remember how much that translates. Lots and lots, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what other numbers are you interested in? Like the... I think yeah. that's that's fine, honestly. I'm just you know, yeah. more wondering about, uh, you know, it could have been this year, last year, before, just trying to get an idea of, like, you know, the, the contest because I think yeah. I have a good idea of how big Flex is, but other people listening might not know, like, is this guy just creating, you know, these one-off courses or is this actually something I should pay attention yeah. to? In total, in total, I think we can say we have over 5,000 students, which are paying customers. We have a very big audience on social media, so we have, I think... 350,000 subscribers on YouTube and 120 or something, uh, 120,000 on Instagram. And now we have also a, a pretty big blog. So we have a lot of free audience, but we have 5,000 paying customers and a very big chunk of them, as I've mentioned, we have three products. So a very big chunk of them is a repeat customer, meaning they've bought multiple courses with us. And our mm. price range is around $700 for a course. So that's pretty much how the, the math looks like. Yeah, yeah. So we can start here and then we can go down a couple of different rabbit holes from there. But how has the sort of marketing strategy, whatever has gotten people to the courses and sort of built the following, how has that evolved over time? In other words, what did you start doing? And through that process, what does that look like to today? And then we can dive into a few things from there. All right, so originally, as I mentioned, it all originally started from a YouTube channel, which I just, I've posted daily, meaning five times per week. I didn't post on weekends. So five times per week consistently for three years, I think before we launched anything. And, and so that was, that was the main channel. That was the main channel. I didn't have an email list. I didn't have anything. I just had the YouTube channel. Instagram, I didn't have, Instagram was just personal photos of me snowboarding or something. I wasn't putting content on. I just started maybe at the end of 2018. I had a very small following. 
but it was like the super fans. The super fans from the YouTube channel went on over to Instagram, not because of content, just because they liked me and they wanted to see stories of me hanging out with my kids. So those were like the super fans. And those were the channels that kicked this thing off because I did basically the validation over on Instagram because the the audience was very small. Maybe I think I had maybe like 5,000 followers, but they were super engaged. So that's how I did like the pre-sale and everything. That's how it started. And then when I got, after I launched it and I was like, oh shit, I'm, I'm dropping my freelance business. I'm going all in on this. <clears throat> I tried running ads early in 2019 and it, it didn't work well for me. I think I was very, I saw people around me, like a few people in the, online course business scale up very fast with ads and I was in a sense greedy or I wanted to have that kind of phenomenal growth so I started doing ads it didn't work well we couldn't we couldn't crack it maybe I didn't pay enough attention I was working with a freelancer maybe he wasn't good enough I don't know but it didn't work well and it was mainly just distracting me from doing what I do well which is content so I decided fuck it. I mean, I, st I just stopped doing it and focused on just on the content, on organic content. And basically, we've managed to get to where we are today with just organic content. Mainly, big biggest driver is still number one YouTube, and then Instagram. And I've now over the last year, it's really been kind of like systemized and it moved from being just me, we now have a content team and we have other people on the channel as well. So that has really been systemized. And Instagram as well. Instagram, I have not created content for my own Instagram probably in a year and a half. So we have, now we have a team that, that are just on content production. I'm still doing videos for YouTube, but other people as well. So now it has really been systemized. Yeah, just like content marketing team and, and we're, we're pumping content working with writers to write a blog and have SEO strategy. So that's how it, it looks right now. And uh, yeah, this year we again try to do some ads. Again, cannot say that we have succeeded or it wasn't clear. We're going to try again next year because it is an opportunity that we need to use. But uh, yeah, but we haven't managed to crack that yet. It is a, a hard one to crack. I think especially... I mean, the, the thing that I think that a lot of people latch on to is the personality of the creator, which is you. And then in an ad, you only have, you know, a second and a half and, you know, a very two-dimensional version of yourself that is hard to kind of build that rapport with. And so it's a much different approach and yeah. strategy. You have to and, be uh, way more extreme and clickbaity and stuff like that. And it just, for me, it doesn't resonate well with me. So I'm, I hate the ads that we're doing. I hate, I mean... I don't feel like we've been we've been able to create something that I'm actually proud of because the content is valuable and people watch it because they want to watch it. But ad is disruptive by nature. So this is this is like my marketing channel. How can we do an ad that's going to be valuable that people are going to be happy that we, you know, interrupted them? Right, right. And, and when you say running ads, like what platforms, you know, is it on Google or the YouTube ads? Is it Facebook and Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, other? Mainly Facebook, Instagram. 
and a little bit maybe of search ads. But again, I, I don't think like I have ever put a proper attention to it because I was always doing so many things and my bias is towards creating content. So I always try to delegate this to somebody else, including the creatives. And that is, I think, was my biggest mistake because they never knew our business and they never had my voice or the voice that I resonated with. And so I always hated it. And also like it didn't prove itself like financially. Yeah. But I think, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I cut you off. I wanted to say that now I think next year and with the new person that's joining us, I'm going to give it proper attention and try to create something that I think is good. Hmm. I like what you said about making something that you're proud of. That's sort of been my philosophy recently. It's just like, I don't care what it is or how well it works, as long as it's not costing me money, which I think is the hard balance with with ads, right? But also I think having that attitude, attitude with ads is a, a good approach because then you're thinking about how do I make this valuable and not just a shtick, not just a gimmick, not just a clickbaity title or something that overpromises or ends up getting you the wrong type of customer, right? So I think that's a good approach. I wanted to ask you, are, are you doing more email marketing these days? Like, do you have a, a newsletter, a list, some sort of sequence, drip, automation to get people, you know, in, into <gasps> yeah. the funnel, right? And, yeah, it's so and nurture them. So, yeah, we do. We do. We have. What originally worked well for us is a webinar funnel. Um, again, this is a $700 product and people need context about it. It's not like an impulse purchase. So a webinar, which is basically like a one hour spending with me and learning with me and seeing my communication style and then getting some incentive at the end to join, that we found that works well for us. So that kind of a funnel have been working well for us for the past two years. Yeah, we do have a bunch of email automation and resources. We just released like a Notion template and we have other resources that we're releasing. And I'm sending the email list like a weekly, we call it value email. It's basically me mm. telling a story and not trying to sell anything. Uh, yeah. So it's basically value, value, value until you know we have a big campaign and then it's like sales, sales, sales. So that's kind of like the, the structure. The, yeah, the cadence. I also wanted to ask you about YouTube. I think what you have 364,000 subscribers as of this recording, it's been something I think that you mentioned that you started because you liked it and you just liked making videos and you took after Casey Neistat, which I'm also a big, big Casey fan. What do you think has been some, so I think a lot of people could start YouTube. They maybe get like a little bit of traction. They get a thousand, you know, subscribers, 2000, 4,000. I assume you've probably been doing it now for four or five years, but still to get to, you know, mid six figure subscribers is not an easy feat. What do you think has been some of the keys to actually be able to make YouTube work for you and keep growing consistently? First of all, consistency, <laughs> I think, because <laughs> you just have to stay in the game longer and then it starts to, cause it's, it's a ball that's rolled and the more, you know, the more it rolls, the more people are watching, the more people YouTube will recommend it to. So it's a ball that's rolling. Um, and it's, and it's exponential. Like the, I think the first year I got to 10,000 subscriber and then the next year I got to 30,000. So 
I mean, first year I got 10,000 subscribers and the next year I got 20,000 subscribers and the following year I got 40,000 subscribers. So it, it, it's growing exponentially. But it's, so it's consistency plus, I think, trying to get better, right? So trying mm -hmm. to get better, understand what resonates with people. So for the first, I think maybe two years, it was mainly, again, I didn't promote it. I didn't think about SEO. I didn't do any research. It was basically a blog, but again, unlike Casey, I try to have like a learning or a takeaway every video. So there's a topic. It's not just lifestyle, it's you learn something. And then I moved into a more structural thing where I was like, I'm not carrying a camera with me every single day. And I stopped that. I kept releasing videos, but I was just like, I'm just going to sit for one day and batch five videos. We're gonna have the Monday show, the Tuesday show. Every every day is gonna be a different topics consistently. And you know, we're gonna do that. So I did that for two years. Now we have a little bit of a different, you know, format, but we re now we start to understand what works, what resonate, what we should do more of. So now we're now we're treating this as a business, right? Originally we treated it as I treated it as fun and hobby and a creative outlet. But I think although I didn't try to optimize for the first couple of years, the people who were there got more maybe emotionally involved, right? It was more, I wouldn't say authentic, but like today, I don't shoot my kids. Today, I don't share my personal life anymore. Right, and it right. used to be that. It used to be, hey, I'm going to lunch. Here's what I'm eating. So <laughs> pe when people see that, they, I think they got more emotionally attached and, and, and it, it creates a different kind of bond. And that's great. And, but I don't want to do it anymore. So I'm, I'm doing the trade-off of saying, you know, I'm going to create content. People are, might be a little less engaged with that content, but I'm cool because I don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. So it's a trade-off. And also, I mean, what, what gets you here might not get you there, sort of the saying, right? Is so you don't yep. have to do the same thing forever, right? You can right. sort of right, 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 change right, right. and evolve. And, and now, uh, I'm in the, now in general, I'm in the business of, if I really want to scale this, it cannot just be me because I am not right. scalable. So we have to build a team. We have to build other people. We have to build. So in general, we're, we're kind of shifting. The, the strategy shifts. Hmm. Do you have other people, like basically, are, are other people personalities on the YouTube channel now as well, yeah, where yeah, it's not just you of recording videos? Yeah. What, yeah. what was that like on like choosing? I mean, because it's sort of a big deal, I would feel like, if you were to not hand your channel over, but you're basically giving this person a platform and you're putting your trust in them to, to stick around for a while, one, but also two, to create content that you think is inherently good and valuable and on brand and on style. And, you know, is it multiple people? Or is it just one person? I'm just curious, like, what the thought process was off, like for, it, for doing that. Initially, started out with me just kind of like contracting people who I thought other people who had YouTube channels like, hey, can you do a video for my channel on this topic? I think it'll be valuable. I tried that. And then when, you know, when I brought somebody in-house originally, he's called Ismail, super talented person. Originally, I brought him to, to create content on my Instagram channel. And he immediately created content that's better than me. So that, and on Instagram, it's easier. And then 
and then I asked him, hey, do you want to, do you want to start doing videos on YouTube? And he was like, yeah, I'd be, I'd be down with that. And then he started doing it. And then now we had a pretty big, I think this year we commissioned a lot of different people to come on the channel and teach. But now I think we regrouped and said, okay, only our team, our in-house team is going to uh, do videos for the channel because now our team is bigger and we have multiple creators within the team and we want to develop them versus just random, let's say, people that we contract for one video. But it wasn't like a fixed strategy to begin with. It was more like experimental and now we're kind of like narrowing it down to a strategy. Hmm. And has that also gone hand in hand with more of the optimization type of stuff, if you will, around keywords and title and thumbnail and, you know, even like tags, things like that, where you're really sort of buttoning up every video to, to have sort of this template, if you will, around, okay, this is like the best practice for how we create a video, or is it still a little bit loose and you're flexible no, and loose. you're not thinking too much about it? It's loose. I think the main guideline is you start off introducing yourself and then maybe there's a call to action in the end, but everything that goes in the middle, do whatever you want. <laughs> there's yeah, no, no fixed structure for the video. So you're not thinking about, okay, how well is this video doing compared to the video before it or the other video? Like, do you have expectations for how you're measuring it or, you know, other videos that you put out that you're disappointed in? I mean, I, I would assume we're, there has to be some sort of benchmark. The, we're looking at the end of the month and we're looking at the numbers, but it's, we're using it as indicators, but for example, we're using it as indicators, but it's not, we only look at the numbers. One thing that we're realizing right now is the most popular videos or the videos that are doing best, they might be boring for us to do. So mm. if we're sick of doing <laughs> them, we're just gonna find something else that works, but we don't, want to, we don't want to spend our time doing stuff that we don't enjoy doing. And then on the other hand, there are, sometimes I'm super passionate about a topic and I feel like I have to share this. Like it might be controversial. And then I just state my opinion and it's just okay average minus video but I still I have to do it and I know that not a lot of people watch it but the people who did watch it those are the people who are going to matter at the end of the day so and they because they believe our philosophy they believe what we believe so you need to look at the numbers but you need to not be like a slave to the numbers I think that's a that's a slippery slope right otherwise everybody will just like finish with ads that has beautiful sexy women and like clickbait titles <laughs> i mean we'll all just like go there if we're just trying to optimize for the numbers yeah it devolves very quickly yeah and, yeah the formula's there well so i'm noticing like an interesting pattern that's really into and about doing work that you like and the work that you're proud of and you want to do things that are enjoyable has it always been that way or have you felt like you've gone down other paths where you know you just you have to do the thing and even though it sucks you think you don't like it it's it's necessary but it, i mean from my perspective it seems like you've stuck pretty closely to the sort of ethos even for your team as well which i admire to do work that you like and not to no, look at the okay, numbers no. too too much <laughs> no so okay let me rephrase because <laughs> if that's the if that's what you got <laughs> this is the wrong i am a really adamant believer of you need to do what you hate 
because you need to do what is required. And I just wrote like a tweet, I think the other day that for me, writing sales emails and going to the gym are both things that I really hate and I still do them because I know that what, if you want the money at the end, you need to ask for it. And if you want to, you know, stay healthy, you need to go to the gym. I hate those things. I really do not enjoy them, but I will keep doing them because I understand that it's necessary. So I am not just like, hey, do what you love, everything should, no. I have spent a lot of time building this business, dealing with the infrastructure of setting the email automation and blah, blah, blah. All the dirt of building a business, a lot of it is not fun, is not exciting, is not shiny. And I've, I've done that and it was worth it. So I'm, and I'm still doing it, a lot of things that I hate. So what I meant with the content is at the end of the day, if you are bored and not excited, specifically when it comes down to content, it shines through and it's not sustainable because people are going to see that you're not excited and it's not fun to see a video or read something when you feel like the person who did it didn't put his heart into it. So I just feel like in this case, it's not a long, it's not a good long-term strategy because it's going to hurt us, both in terms of the audience is not going to react well to it and we are going to burn out doing it because we, will, we won't enjoy it. So I try to optimize when necessary, but still doing the work that is necessary, even if you hate it, a lot of times that is required, right? So, yeah. I appreciate that. No, that's, a, that's a good yeah. clarification. That's why I wanted to bring it up because- No, know, no, it's, it's a, fantastic. It's fun. I, I think it's a very big, you know, with all the Steve Jobs, do what you love, follow your passion. <laughs> a lot of people mistakenly think that they can spend their life not doing the dirty work but you have to do the dirty work, so. Yeah, like everything, it lives on a spectrum, right? And you can't only do the things you love. You can't, you shouldn't only do the things you hate too, just yeah. for the money. You have to be somewhere in the middle and, and balance that out. One of the things I wanted to ask about was around course production. From what I can tell, I haven't taken one of the courses, although I've actually been very tempted in the past just because I'm a Webflow user, but I'm not a web designer, right? And so it's, it's scary to me to a certain degree. And also I don't do a lot of web design, right? So. But from what I can tell, the courses are very highly, you know, high fidelity. They're well-produced, well-designed, of course, right? Could you talk me a little bit through just how you think about an approach and maybe even tactically how you produce the courses from recording to even just like, you know, the manuscripts or slide decks or how you plan out the content for each one. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you plan out courses and actually create the content for them. Okay, I can share what we're doing right now, but this is a little bit misleading because this is not how I started. This is right, right. after doing five, six, seven courses because some of our courses are already in a second iteration. Like we've redone them from scratch. So this is not how I did my first, and we've talked about this earlier, MVP, minimum viable product. My first course was super crappy, really crappy. Everything was <laughs> crappy. Uh, but now we, we have the resources to do something better. The way that we work right now is, first of all, we start off with the end result. So we're trying to be very outcome-based. So we're 
very clearly defining who are we trying to help, what problem are we trying to solve for them, what should they be able to do by the end of it. So we need to have a very clear definition that kind of informs the curriculum. So the next step is to build a curriculum. It's basically just like a doc with you know a list of the videos. Then I go ahead and I start expand in the same doc like as sub bullets, like basically write the content, which is basically the slides. I usually do it in the same doc as sub bullets. And then the next step is to take these this content, transform it to a slide deck. And if we need examples, if we need, you know, exercises, that kind of stuff, and then go ahead and record it, then edit it. And then, yeah all the other things, captions, exercises, resources, docs, all the other things. But that's basically how the production cycle looks like. How long does it usually take you from beginning to end? Uh, it depends, but usually around, I think, for our kind of scope of courses, it's a three months from start to launch, usually. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty quick, I feel like, actually, if you're considering all the editing and everything you, may, you might need to go back and do or change or tweak and then to actually sort of like plan and launch. Should do you feel like it's I, sort of a sprint I, I, or? I should say I do not reshoot and I do not. I just really? do it in one take. Yeah, I just do it with one take. I don't have like a script. I have, but that's my style. It's very personal. This is how hmm. I do it. I don't need a, a script. I It's enough that I see the bullet points on the slide and I can talk about it and then 99% of the times, it's just going to be one shot. I click, start, and I s so the edit is mainly trimming the beginning and the ending and editing like we do that, you know, the, the right now the, the titles comes with animation and sometimes they're, so that's the edit. But hmm. other than that, it's pretty minimal. So there's not, we don't even remove the um, that kind of stuff. <laughs> I try to, I, I've, I, but I've had like a thousand videos recorded on YouTube. So I've had practice talking to the camera. So yeah. now that we're starting to have the other team member record courses and stuff like that, maybe the maybe it will change. I'm just sharing my personal experience after doing yeah. it. First course that I ever recorded, I tried to do it with a script, and that was very painful because then, oh, you've missaid this, you didn't say this correctly. Let's record this again, and that took that took forever. Mm -hmm. So I don't do that anymore. So when I first created my, my first course, Mental Models for Marketing, I just wanted to like get something out there. I just wanted to try it, see what it was like. I also pre-sold because I heard that advice over and over again. I was like, oh, I, should, I should just do it. I know I don't want to do it, but I should just do it. And anyways, I, I put a, a public deadline to launch it in a month. And so I didn't even have time to like do any editing or like reshoot anything. I maybe I might have reshot like one or two just because I screwed up massively in some way that was like irreparable, <laughs> irreversible. But then after that, you know, the other courses and now most other things that I do, I don't, you know, reshoot or do a lot of edits. I don't have nearly as much experience on YouTube, but I found that I, I use more of like a script, not really like bullet points. I'm not as good like on the fly. I need more like here are the things I really want to say and I will feel horrible if I miss something or I feel like I didn't go to the length of detail that I wanted to, but it's just so interesting how everyone has the different style. You know, I think that I've heard about, you know, there's Rite of Passage with David Perel and there's Tiago Forte with Building a Second Brain. And there's a couple of other course creators. I think Marie, Marie Pooling again with Notion Mastery, who I talked to, like very, very, very scripted, very, very highly produced. And maybe what's interesting is that 
you know, what your audience knows and loves about you is the YouTube video, which is like essentially one ginormous kind of course anyways, <laughs> right? You're just repackaging and, and that's the same type of content that they've known and loved thus far. Yep. And it's, and it's more conversational. It's true. That's, but that's my personal style. Yeah. Right. It's everyone has their own flavor. No right or wrong answers. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about was how you run the business and how the business itself has evolved. You've been talking about how it's expanded beyond just yourself. Now you have a team and ever growing team. I'm curious, you know, how you decided to bring other people on, how the business has grown and sort of now what it's like to be a business operator and not just a, you know, creator, quote unquote. I'll start with the end. I am a horrible operator of a business. I realized <laughs> this this year. And I and more than that, I do not enjoy it. I'm not good at it and I'm not enjoying. It. So along with the marketer that I just hired, I also hired a COO who is going to basically manage the business. So I can really? keep doing the things that I'm good at. Yeah, but the the business there'll be another manager for the business. Um to go through this, how did it get started? Well, it got started originally when I couldn't support all of the students. We've had too many students. I've promised I would answer their question in a Facebook group originally, which has since moved into a circle community. But originally, Facebook, I'll answer all of your questions. And I was doing, like, my day became answering questions just for people instead of creating or... So that was the first thing that it was obvious I need to delegate. And as we grew and grew and have more courses, that's basically our biggest team now. We have, I think, five professional coaches who are, you know, Webflow experts or professional web designers, and they're giving feedback, they're troubleshooting work, they're helping people. So that's that's the biggest team that we have now, support and community and coaches. And then, as I said, I realized I am on Instagram just creating content all the time and it's taken up a lot of my time and I didn't want to do it anymore. I wasn't as excited, I think, about Instagram as much as I was about YouTube. YouTube was way easier than than Instagram because for me to create a five-minute YouTube video takes seven minutes. <laughs> so that's it. And I shit, I, I talk, I and that's it. The file is dropped in Dropbox, and that's it. I have an editor. The editor will edit it. So for me, it's seven minutes. But to create an Instagram post, one post is will take me one hour, and and the YouTube effort is even more evergreen than the Instagram post. So it was kind of like not a good use of my time, and so I've started looking for that. But yeah, the, actually, the first hires that I had was the the Webflow coach, a copywriter because I sucked at, at copywriting. Because copywriting is different than content writing. I'm great at writing stories and blog posts, but when it comes to selling, I suck at this. I suck, as I said earlier, I hate asking for money. And so I've hired, I've hired, I found an amazing copywriter. She was one of the first people that I've started working with and an editor. So that, that was, my first initial kind of like team of freelancers helping me out and it basically evolved into a big team. Yeah, so that's where we are today. Yeah, that's amazing. And then like nitty gritty stuff, we were talking a little bit 
pre-recording, but you know, what does it look like day to day to to run things? Are there usually certain days that you batch tasks or projects for um, me? For you, me personally, or for the whole team, or for yeah, for for you and for the the team and the business, as it were. So, like, what's going on? What's the how does the the machine chug along? Okay, so for me. I have content creation days, and it depends on whether I'm creating a course right now or what's happening. But I'll give you, I'll give you like the structure of what happened for me this week, for example. So this week, you know, on start of the week, I'm creating YouTube videos. They are already batched out for further weeks because we kind of have a pipeline. So I record YouTube videos. That's one thing. We of course have syncs with the company, what's happening this week, who's doing what, and so we have all of these meetings. We have a campaign that's running right now, an email campaign. We just purchased another company. I won't bother you with it, but we purchased a big company, a company that has a big email list, and we're running a campaign to that email list right now. So write some sales email, schedule everything like technically on MailChimp, blah, 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 do that. And then I'm doing a live stream this week. And the reason that I'm doing a live stream is we need a new video for our webinars. And the best way to, instead of me just recording a webinar, I might as well just do it as a live stream and have people on and, and then mm. just use this recording. So I need a new webinar, so I need to do a live stream. I'm doing it tomorrow. So I've spent this week creating the content for this live stream. So this has been my week. Yeah, sales emails and creating content for a webinar. And this is so this is this is a week that's more focused on sales and marketing. A different week might be, you know, I'm spending all of my mornings recording a course. And then for me, usually mornings are deep, deep work sessions. And then afternoons is meetings and syncs and all that kind of thing. So mm. record a course in the morning, do meetings and other tasks, emails afternoon. That might look like another type of week. Okay, so I, I can't skip over buying a company. What? <laughs> how much can you share there? What? What's the story? Yeah, no, I'll I'll, I'll share. The, the company is called uh, Design Files. So how this happened is, you know, when I created our web design course, I did a research on what are the best kind of like wireframing kits that I can recommend for our students, and I found this one kit called Platforma. Really, really fantastic resource. It costs around sixty to one hundred and fifty dollars, depending on what pack you're buying. So that was like an awesome product, and I reached out to the owner because I told him, "Look, I really want to give this to our students as as a part of the course. I think this is a phenomenal thing. I can't pay you sixty dollars times four thousand. That's a lot of money. So let's." think about like how what can we do here can you give me like a bulk discount whatever this happened already two years ago eventually he gave me a discount code and i gave it to our students and that's but he recently like a few months ago reached out to me and says hey you know what we're thinking of selling the company because we're, we're working on another SaaS product <laughs> and we want to <laughs> focus on that so we we, we want to sell this business it's it's cash flowing it's doing i think 300k per year and we want to sell it and so we started looking into it, and it was really interesting for us from a few from a few opportunities. First of all, it's a profitable cash flowing business. Second of all, it's in really good alignment. The, the meaning, if we have this, we can bundle it with our course. It's a good value for our students. This can also serve as a lead gen for people who are 
downloading or purchasing all of these assets, they can then be upselled to our courses. Obviously, they're into web design, so right. they're irrelevant. Yeah. And the third thing was they they had a very big email list. So, you know, our assumption or our bet was if we can pay back the the price of the purchase with just doing a campaign selling to this big list, that's going to be amazing because then we got a business for free, you know? Mm. And that's what we're trying to do. <laughs> so the campaign is up next week and then we'll know if it was a good bet or, you know, we don't know yet, but... <laughs> But regardless, what, I mean, yeah, sounds like a great thinking. business to buy. But I love the yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the scheming and the yeah. plan. And I, I've been so one of the things I've been exploring more is uh, this whole kind of theme of M and A marketing, as I've been calling it. It's, it's essentially buying companies or assets for the purpose of growth and uh, and or some sort of like overlap, right? And um, so this is an amazing example. I'm really glad that you just yeah, kind of popped it in is. there because it is, but because. I, I just want to say, like, I I have also not been thinking about this. You know, we are all like for me, the default is, well, how do you get more leads? OK, so you buy leads on Facebook. How much does it cost you to buy a lead on Facebook? Whatever. Ten dollars per lead or whatever. And and so you do the math. If you're thinking about this, I'm now buying, you know, 400,000 leads. How much would it cost me to buy these leads otherwise? And if you think about it this way, and then it looks like a really good deal. Like you're getting leads oh, at the very, deal. very good price. Yeah. And Especially also, you, like you, you said, be, because you, it's, at, you, it's at the lower end of the price spectrum, right? Yeah. Especially and, and compared you, to the courses. If you, if you run an email list already, you probably know the value of a subscriber, right? So if you assume, assume I can convert people at the same rate or maybe a bit lower what's the value of this list based on what I know? And then you can make a calculation about that. Yeah, so we'll, we'll figure it out if we were right or wrong very soon. But if we were right, then yeah, this is a great tactic. If we were wrong, well, we'll, we'll talk about it next year. Right, we'll yeah, see. <laughs> round, round two, round two. Yeah. No, there's no way it can fail or at least be a, a terrible choice. I, I am curious, are you sort of, have you announced to, you said it was design files or as a yep. platform? Yeah, um, we, we have, the, Platforma is the name of the product, design files is the name of the company. Yeah, we have announced okay. this on our YouTube channel. We have announced it to our audience. Okay. We've give the resources for free as a gift to our to our students. Yeah. And so then for, for, for platform and design files customers, basically, are you like rolling that into Flux? Like is it basically like platform and design files is going away? And no, if not, or no, if we're, so, we're keeping right now, we're keeping it as a separate brand, the same website, like even we, we don't use MailChimp, they use MailChimp. So we're running the campaign mm -hmm. on their platform. We're using Entreport. I don't know if we'll merge the list eventually, mm -hmm. but for now, we're just keeping it with the same setup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting for what it's worth. Just a small tidbit. I'd, I'd recommend against doing any big migrations, at least for right now. Yeah. Having worked for an email marketing tool and platform before, there's all sorts of sticky stuff that happens with deliverability and bounces. I imagine and that's why we didn't. Blacklist. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Very smart. At least for the time being. There's there's no rush there for sure. So one of the other things, other things I wanted to get your thoughts on. You mentioned it a little bit briefly. Was who do you look to for inspiration? It could be other course creators, education companies, maybe even like designers. But when you're looking to improve Flex or try new things, where do you look? People, companies, brands, 
so I really love the 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 you're you're probably familiar with masterclass because everybody has seen their ads but they also the the founder mm -hmm. started another company which is called outlier i'm not sure if you're familiar with it it's basically no. the same company it, it, it the same principles the, the same concept of uh masterclass but it's for college courses so it's the concept is highly produced college courses at a lower lower rate and I think, I think what they are doing is creating kind of like a premium experience of high production quality. It looks very, very premium, and I like this. I like their design sensibility. So I look, I look at that and I think, I would love to be the best design school, but I would also like to create a premium experience. We will never be the cheapest. We will never be, you know, we, we want to be the best, not the cheapest. And I'm trying to ask myself, there's, to me, there's always the, I don't know if it's trade-off or conflict between being premium, because when you're a premium brand, you usually don't sell too hard, right? Premium is more like, oh, you can't join us. You're not part of the cool kids. Join the, join the email list or some, uh, the, the wait list or it costs a lot of money or something like this. While on the other hand is the very direct respond you know, sale, 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 very hard, hard sale. And so there is, there is kind of like tension there between these two things. And one thing that I think a mistake that I did this year, this year I was, I announced at the end of 2020, I was like, we're going to be a premium brand. We're going to be the Apple of design school and we will never do discounts again. And so we stopped mm -hmm. doing discounts. And, and I think at the end of the day, like even financially, you look at it and people did not re react to it very well. And so, and, and so you have to spend more money on Facebook ads or whatever, or sales efforts to acquire a customer. And then you end up making the same profit. And so you just made your customers pay Mark Zuckerberg more money. And so mm. I'd maybe rather not do it. So I don't know, There's I, I still haven't, I think for now we kind of rolled back and we're back into discounting sometimes and doing promotions and that kind of stuff. I don't think I've figured that out 100% on how to do it because the people I look up to if you know if I think what is a great brand or marketing or you know I look at somebody like Apple you're trying to compare yourself to somebody you know you can't really compare yourself to them because they've spend years and years and tons and tons of money to be able to do what they're doing. And even looking at, I'm looking at Outlier, as I've mentioned, I don't know their finances. They've raised probably a bunch of money and they might be losing money right now. I am a profitable company. I need to stay profitable if I want to stay in business. So I'm in a different business. So I think right now there is a gap between the marketing that I want to create and the marketing that I have to create. As I said, I'm very kind of like sales wary. If I could just create great content and people would just buy without me telling them to buy, that would be amazing. Unfortunately, that's not real life. It's for me at the moment. Maybe they, it will change. Hopefully it will change. But for now, I actually have to tell people, buy now, <laughs> right? <laughs> and they do. Yeah. And they're happy with it. And they're, it changes their life and everything. And like, so... So you got to sell, but I don't enjoy selling. So that's, it's where I am. Well, I think there's also, 
an interesting distinction between what you sell and that sometimes determines how you sell it. And so, you know, an everyday product like a, like an iPhone, right. Where you get to hold it and touch it and you use it, you know, for hours and hours and hours a day. Like, of course they don't need to discount it or create any sort of urgency because this is like one of the most core products in the world. You know, it's just like, there are only so many that are going to be like, I just have to have my, my hands on it. Right. And Apple happens to produce not, like all of them. It's like your iPhone, the AirPods, your, your MacBook. But, but it's not true because Apple is not the biggest manufacturer of, you know, smartphones. They're not the biggest in the market. They're making most Very money true. and most people buy discounted phones. So yeah, that, that is very true. Yeah, especially yeah. outside of the U.S., there's a lot of Android and the other interesting part. Also, though, is, I think if you look well, at the U.S., the U.S., I don't think the U.S. is mostly iPhone. It's who we hang out with and who we see that's, around. That's us. very true. That's but very true. it's our bubble. I should go. Yeah, I should go look at the numbers. I think it's probably close. Maybe it's like sixty forty or you know forty five fifty five or something like that. The other interesting part, which I won't go down too far, but just uh, there's all the like phone service providers and carriers that also, you know, take some of the hit when they when they do give you a discount. It's not Apple giving you a discount. It's Verizon or it's AT and T yeah. or T Mobile, yeah. and so Apple doesn't have to to do that work for you. But I'll digress there. I am curious. Are you planning on doing some sort of Black Friday, Cyber Monday deal, because you were talking about discounting and yep. sort of the strategy, right? And creating the urgency. So is that part of the end of your strategy? Yeah, for sure. We did it last year and it worked phenomenally well. So we're gonna do it this year as well, yeah. But we're mm -hmm. going to do something super, super fun. I think we came up with an idea that is really aligned with what we do. And I'm really excited about it. What we're going to do is we're going to do a live stream where we design and build the page for like the deal and the offer for uh. the Black Friday. So essentially we're going to teach you to design and build a website. It's just that the content that we're building is the Black Friday promotion. So we're giving you value, we're teaching you, but you know, you're familiarizing yourself with the sales material, but we're not pushing you, but we're just building it, you know? And you get to decide whether that. you want to buy or not. But yeah, there's the discount element and, and everything. Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic idea. As opposed to last year, was it just a series of emails or some yeah. sort of <laughs> webinar or? Yeah, just ads, ads and ads and yeah. emails. Which I assume, again, it worked fantastically, right? So you it can't worked really well. <laughs> you, yeah. For sure. so. And we're going to do those again this year. I mean, yeah. it's on top of it. I just said, like, I'm bored with doing ads and emails. Let's do yeah. something else. I love that. That's really, really fun. I might have to think of something like that for, for swipe files as well. Spice it up a little bit. So you got my, my brain turning. I won't keep you too much longer, but I did want to ask, I wanted, I'd love to take a peek at your swipe file as it were. And just, you know, what does Rand pay attention to? What does he think is cool, interesting? What is he taking screenshots of? Is there, are there a couple of examples you can walk me through and just talk through, you know, why was that thing notable or interesting? It doesn't have to be like the best ever. It doesn't have to be hyper-analyzed, but just, you know, walk me through your thought process for a couple. Actually, I told you earlier I'm grabbing screenshots of Instagram ads, but that's boring. I actually found myself, I opened up a note. I'm using Apple Notes to take notes of things. And I just opened up a note. Actually, it was a few years ago, a few days ago, so re super recently, called Content and Marketing. And one is just a tweet that I copied here. I can read you the tweet. 
It's yeah. just a tweet that resonated with me. And it was, instead of giving them a free tip, you're giving them a new perspective. You're transforming the way that they see something, the way that they feel about it. I don't even remember who tweeted this. And ultimately, compelling prospects see you at a deep psychological level as an authority figure, the only person capable of helping them achieve the outcome. That was an interesting framework for content that I haven't thought about before because we are giving them tips. We are also giving them a new perspective, but it's interesting to think about it from this perspective. And then the second thing was another tweet from somebody called George Mack. I don't know if you know this person. I think so, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, so he tweeted something. It was three days ago. I get DMs from founders with the same specific problems. Here's a list of public list of marketing tools I recommend. And it was really interesting. There was a lot of things there that I wasn't familiarized myself with. So I saved my tw this tweet. I can share it with you if you want to share it with other people as well. That's yeah, what I yeah. have right now. I've got two, these two things in my swipe files. And uh, I love it. <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. New tools, yeah. new, new communication for, for content. Of course, that's top of mind for you. You're the content creator, so yeah. I love it. Final question for you. When I say everything is marketing, it's the title of the show. What does that mean to you? What comes to mind? I think, you know, you're, I don't know if everything is, I mean, I can explain why everything is marketing. Also why everything <laughs> is sale. I feel like I can explain anything, whatever you would say, I'd probably find a way to explain it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why <laughs> logic is well, what comes to mind uh, logic you. or real. Yeah, yeah. You know, every, everything that you do I come from branding. So branding, they say, there is a famous quote, it's not what you say about yourself, it's what other people say about yourself. So in that sense, everything you do is marketing because that every interaction that you have with a, with a person, everything content that you create, everything that you do eventually shapes how other people think about you. So it's marketing because that will get them to know you, maybe like you, maybe trust you, eventually maybe buy from you. So every interaction matters in the real world from just like being nice to people that you meet at random places. You never know who's going to recommend the next client to you or whatever to creating content online. Yeah. Or basically every interaction contributes mm, to I this. Love that. Yeah. Well, Ran, super appreciate you coming on, sharing everything, being transparent, getting behind the scenes on acquisitions and channels and failures. It's been awesome. Thank so I just want to so say much. thank you. Thanks, Corey. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure chatting. Thanks again to Rand for coming on the show. Make sure to check out Flux Academy. And just by the way, it's a great example of an amazing landing page if you want some more inspiration and to add it to your swipe file. And of course, if you can spare a moment, click on the link in the show notes and pop on Twitter to thank him personally for coming on the show and sharing everything today, especially for being so transparent. And to wrap up, here are a few of my takeaways from our conversation. It's a cliche at this point, but especially when selling info products, building an audience before you sell anything is so key. Rand be began creating uh, YouTube videos and making a name for himself locally before his first course. And that was really what allowed him to sort of kickstart his success was actually having that distribution, that audience beforehand. I also thought it was interesting hearing Rand's thoughts on discounting and how they ended up reverting their no discounting policy. You know, flexibility is a luxury and um, it's a thing you want to keep close to yourself and always give yourself options. 
I've made it a goal personally to make as little definitive policies and guarantees as possible for that same reason. That way you can always go back on it. And finally, I love how Rand thought about hiring others to create content for him in Flux, and he realized that it wasn't a high leverage activity for him, or at least some types of content, and that ultimately someone else could do it far better than himself and create far more than himself. And this is a huge key to scaling marketing, is you have to let go of the reins and get it up to others beyond yourself. If you've got a question or a takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.